Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm David Schultz. Well, the Supreme Court heard argument in arguably one of its biggest cases this term, U.S. v. Rahimi. Uh, Kimberly, what was this case all about and uh, how did it go? Well, this is the case that asks whether or not the federal government can ban those subject to domestic violence restraining orders from owning guns. And uh, I think the United States may have found a Second Amendment case that can win. Yeah, as as we'll hear in a little bit from our guest, uh, I, it doesn't sound like this case is going to be close. It sounds like Rahimi uh, is in for a pretty lopsided ruling against him. Yeah, which isn't super surprising when it comes to criminal defendants in uh, this current court, but it is pretty surprising when it comes to those advocating robust Second Amendment rights. So it was an interesting one for sure. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get to our guest. Joining us to talk about the Rahimi case is Andrew Willinger, the executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Kimberly. So, um, Andrew, I wonder, General Prelogger started out her argument by emphasizing that guns and domestic abusers were a dangerous combination. But nobody in the case really disagrees about that. Instead, the issue is how to apply the so-called Bruin test. So can you remind our listeners what that test is about? Sure. So this is a relatively new test. It was framed by the Supreme Court as simply sort of clarifying prior precedent, but I think it's, it's fair to say that this this test, which was articulated in a case decided last June called Bruin, uh, was really a sea change for the Second Amendment. And in that case, the Supreme Court rejected an approach that had been used over the prior decade or so by every federal appellate court to consider the question had adopted this test. And that test combined an initial textual historical analysis to determine whether the conduct being regulated is within the scope of the Second Amendment in the first place. And if the answer was yes, the court would proceed to apply some form of means and scrutiny, um, usually intermediate scrutiny. Um, And this means that the court would sort of balance the legislative justifications for a gun regulation against the burden on Second Amendment rights. The Supreme Court in Bruin uh, rejected that test, and specifically the the second means and scrutiny part of the test. And the court said that instead, when you have conduct that is protected by the Second Amendment, it's then the government's burden to show that its modern gun regulation is consistent with American historical tradition. Great. Yeah, I want to talk about that previous test that lower courts had used. Um, But first, I'm wondering, you know, during the argument, Justice Kagan said that there was a fair bit of confusion in the lower courts on how to apply Bruin and what it means. Is is that your understanding about what's going on in the lower courts as well? Yes, that's that's my understanding. And, you know, I've been I've been reading and and thinking a lot about uh, these lower court decisions that have been issued in a year plus since Bruin. Um, I've read a lot of them. Um, and, you know, I think it's I think it's certainly fair to say that there is uh, a lot of confusion and that we've seen district court judges and even appellate courts reach uh, conflicting outcomes on the same the same regulation. Right. So, for example, we, uh, we know we're now in a situation where we have courts of appeal going different directions on the felon prohibition. You know, some courts saying that the, the prohibition as a whole is constitutional and there can be no as applied challenges. And some courts 
saying that um, a nonviolent felon may be able to mount an as-applied challenge and, and maybe that the, the Second Amendment protects that individual's rights. So, so I think we're definitely seeing a fair amount of confusion. Um, and yeah, I think this was a very interesting uh, portion of the oral argument because, as you mentioned, Justice Kagan asked uh, the Solicitor General this, this question about sort of what, you know, what types of guidance do you think would be helpful to lower courts who are actually applying this test? And the Solicitor General seemed to have an answer at the ready. Yes, I think that there are three fundamental errors in methodology that this case exemplifies and that we are seeing repeated in other lower courts and that this case provides an opportunity for the court to clarify that Bruin should not be interpreted in the way that respondent is suggesting. She came forward and said, you know, yes, the lower courts are too focused on simply looking at enacted regulations in history rather than the historical record as a whole. Uh, second, lower courts are applying Bruin too narrowly and not abstracting up to a, to a higher level of generality. And, and third and finally, lower courts are, in some cases, placing dispositive weight on the absence of historical regulation, even when there's no evidence that that reflects a judgment about constitutionality. Right. And so in this case, Rahimi and the Fifth Circuit said that there were no similar enough laws barring domestic violence abusers from owning guns at the founding. And that's probably because, you know, in the founding era, domestic violence was not seen as the health crisis that it is today. So what is the government's answer to that? What what do they say this law should be? I mean, this has to do with the level of generality that General Prelogger talked about, right? That's right. Yes. So the government in in, in this case, in its briefing in this case, and then at oral argument has basically proposed, as I understand it, a a framework with sort of two categories to, you know, two, two groups of types of people that can be disarmed consistent with history. So the first category would be those who are not law abiding. We didn't get into that too much in the oral argument here because that's sort of a, a criminal issue, right? That that would deal with somebody who has a criminal conviction, probably for a felony offense only. That's what um, General Prelager suggested. And then the second category is those who are not responsible. And the government seems to equate that with dangerousness. So those who pose a a heightened risk of danger around firearms as opposed to an ordinary citizen. And that's sort of the higher level principle that the government has said should be derived from the historical record and should dictate the outcome in this case. Right. And just to clarify for listeners, some people may be a little confused about that civil criminal kind of distinction. But here, what we're dealing with is somebody who has not been convicted of domestic violence, but is subject to a domestic violence restraining order, which does not work its way through the criminal courts, but through the civil courts. So uh, I think that's the reason why they are placing a lot of weight on this responsible piece of it. But, you know, Chief Justice Roberts and some of the other justices were really concerned that responsible was really too broad, that it was a little too mushy. Responsibility is a very broad concept, not taking your recycling to the curb on Thursdays. I mean, if you're if it's a serious problem, it's irresponsible. Setting a bad example, you know, uh, by yelling at a basketball game uh, in a particular way. As a youth sports coach, I take that one to be, I mean, maybe we should just put that one in the not law-abiding category. But um, how did the government respond to those concerns? Right. So the response by the Solicitor General was essentially that, you know, and I think she responded specifically to the speeding example, saying that, you know, that, that under the government's theory, this is not something that would uh, make a, a person 
irresponsible or dangerous such that their Second Amendment rights could be taken away, right? So the, the, the category does not stretch that, it does not stretch so broadly. It's not responsible in a colloquial sense. It's responsible meaning uh, especially dangerous with regard to firearms. So some of the, you know, some of the sort of applications of this that came through in the oral argument would be an applications, for example, to somebody who's mentally ill, right? Um, that's not something that we deal with through the criminal process. So there's not going to be you know, a criminal conviction of any kind. And there's not necessarily culpability there either, but it's, it's somebody who poses a heightened risk uh, of danger if they are able to possess firearms. Gotcha. So um, Justice Jackson's questions were really interesting to me because I think if you were just reading the transcript and you didn't know anything about um, her jurisprudence, you'd sort of think maybe she was a vote for Rahimi and striking down the federal law. Um, I say that because I think she was really saying, look, the test that you put forth can't be squared with what we said in Bruin. And probably what she was really trying to say was like, look, Bruin is unworkable um, and that we should really go back to these earlier tests, you know. And I think she was making the argument that, you know, the way that the government wants to apply Bruin to this particular case looks a lot like that ends means test. I mean, was that how you took Justice Jackson's questions or you think she's on the side of Brahimi here? Um, yeah, so, so I think uh, that's, that's a really good observation. You know, I, I think just first off, you know, Justice Jackson obviously is the only justice who's sort of coming to this fresh, right? She wasn't um, involved in the Bruin case. There's not, as far as I know, there's not a whole lot out there about uh, well, you know, what her views might be on the Second Amendment. So yeah, I think it was interesting to see her asking some of these questions that are kind of broader methodological questions about the, the proper role of history within the Bruin test. I don't think that she is a vote for Rahimi. I think that's unlikely. I think she was sort of voicing perhaps frustration or confusion with how the how the uh, Bruin test is supposed to function and you know what the proper role of history is and i think you know the, the exchange you mentioned you know justice jackson seemed to be saying look if as the government suggests what you do is first derive a higher level principle from the history and then you look to things like the legislative process, right? The evidence and justifications offered by the legislature uh, for passing a specific law to determine whether that law is within the historical tradition of banning dangerous people from having guns. Isn't that just means and scrutiny under another name? And the Solicitor General's response was, well, well, no, it's not because you have this threshold historical step that you're doing, right? And then you're not balancing. You're not, you know, you're not assessing the burden. You're not saying, well, the burden is really minimal here on Second Amendment rights. That's not part of it. You're simply looking to whether, based on the, the legislative justification, sort of the scope of the law, what other states, maybe, maybe if there's a consensus among the states, you're looking at, at, at how those factors suggest that the law you know, either fits within this historical justification or does not. Yeah, but I, I, I did think Justice Jackson's point about, look, if we're looking uh, at such a high level of generality that we say, OK, at the important time, we ban people who are dangerous. How is it that once we get to deciding who is dangerous, that we're then we're detached from history? Now we're sort of looking at what our standard of dangerousness is today. I mean, that sure does look like a lot like an ends means test to me if the government is able to win on that argument. Yeah, well, well, I think I think it, you know, to that to that point, you know, one one interesting aspect of this argument to me was that it didn't necessarily feel like Mr. Rahimi's uh, counsel was actually 
suggesting a much narrower uh, application of Bruin, um, which, which is a little bit of a departure from, I think, certainly from what the Fifth Circuit did, maybe even from what was argued in the, in the briefs with the Supreme Court, right? Uh, Mr. Rahimi's counsel seemed to be saying it doesn't really matter whether you, <laughs> whether you abstract a higher level principle from the historical record or not. There's just no evidence of a complete ban on possession for somebody who was a constitutional rights holder at the time of the founding. So I actually think both parties in this case almost seem to agree actually on uh, that, that maybe it's maybe it's okay to apply Bruin in this higher generality way. And another interesting part of this is that we really didn't see any of the justices pushing back on that or, or you know, voicing real support for a narrower application of Bruin like what the Fifth Circuit did below. Mm-hmm. One thing I did hear from some of the justices, though, um, was that this case is is hard for Rahimi in particular because it's a facial challenge as opposed to an ad supplied one. Can you explain why that's such a high bar? Sure. So um, this this is a this is a facial challenge, as you as you mentioned. That's the the decision below invalidated 922G8 on its face. What that means generally under the Supreme Court's precedent is that the challenger needs to needs to show that the statute is unconstitutional in all applications. So it's not enough to just show that the law is unconstitutional as it's being applied to a specific individual. You know, the, the person challenging the statute has to show unca- unconstitutionality in every circumstance. And that's that's a little bit of a fuzzy distinction. I think, you know, that there were some exchanges when uh, Mr. Rahimi's counsel was arguing, suggesting that, you know, maybe the court has walked that back in some areas and maybe, you know, maybe it's fine to show that there are just a, you know, a substantial number of unconstitutional applications. But the consequence for this case, if you do take this any set of circumstances rule, is that it's really difficult for Rahimi to prevail, right? Because a lot of the arguments that uh, Rahimi made are ones that simply don't apply in his case, right? Um, Rahimi, Rahimi is not arguing, for example, you know, that there was a, uh, a, a protective order that, that was issued without an actual finding of dangerousness as to him, that the family court here did, did make that finding. Um, so, so some of the arguments, and, and I think Justice Gorsuch, interestingly, was, was pretty focused on this. Counsel, uh, you, you mentioned the self-defense duress necessity uh, uh, concerns in your opening. But this is a facial challenge, right? So we have to ask, is it unconstitutional in any application? And that would include cases where those circumstances don't exist. We don't have to address those in this case, do we? Hmm. So it's always dangerous to try to predict what the Supreme Court's going to do, but that's what I'm going to ask you to do. You have any <laughs> predictions here? Um, I certainly have my predictions. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, yeah, certainly always, uh, always, always dangerous. Always, always tough to read the tea leaves just from from a relatively short oral argument. Relatively, yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, if I had to guess, I would, I would guess it would be a seven to decision uh, reversing the Fifth Circuit. I I would guess that, you know, it would be Justice Thomas and Justice Alito in dissent, the rest of the justices and the majority. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised to see you know, whether it's whether it's in the majority or maybe more likely in a concurring opinion, some commentary on the sort of big picture Bruin application problems 
that were raised at oral argument. Um, and I think Justice Kagan and maybe Justice Jackson, um, you know, would be sort of best best position based on their questions at oral argument to write that concurrence. Interesting. Yeah. So you had mentioned sort of felon in possession laws uh, earlier in our chat. And I think sort of that was one of the elements in the room um, was that this case seems pretty cut and dry. I mean, as soon as they granted it, it looked like a win for the federal government, um, to me at least. And so I think what really what a lot of the argument was about was about, well, what's coming next? And so just sort of wondering what you're watching on the Second Amendment front. Yeah, so so I definitely think that uh, felon in possession is is a huge one. Uh, I mentioned that there's there's now a circuit split on this question of whether you can have as applied challenges by nonviolent or non dangerous felons. And this issue sort of started to surface a little bit even in the oral argument here. Justice Barrett, you know, has a has a past dissenting opinion when she was a circuit court judge in a case called Cantor, where she took the view that basically that dangerousness applies across the board, right? So the government's trying to sort of segment this into non-law abiding and irresponsible slash dangerous. But Justice Barrett's view seems to be that dangerousness applies in the criminal context too. And so only those convicted felons who are dangerous can be disarmed. Um, and there was a there was an interesting exchange between the Solicitor General and Justice Barrett. And what I took away from it was essentially that they sort of both didn't really want to get into this um, and were content to leave it for another day. And there are going to be cases. There's actually one already uh, with a cert petition pending. This is a case called Range, where the Third Circuit granted an as-applied challenge by somebody who had a decades-old conviction for fraudulently overstating his income on a food stamp application. Um, and and so so that's already pending before the Supreme Court. But I think that you know that'll that'll be uh, a major area to watch. And I think uh, my you know my inclination after this oral argument is that the court's probably not going to purport to resolve that question in Rahimi. It will probably take have to take another case. And then there are other you know there are other portions of 922G that, that are also sort of you know cha- you have challenges coming up to the to the court's docket. One that comes to mind is. 922G3, the ban on unlawful users of controlled substances possessing firearms. That's the uh, provision that's that Hunter Biden is charged with violating. And there's also there's a recent Fifth Circuit decision that struck down that law, applying a sort of similar analysis to Rahimi, um, or there's a cert petition pending. So that would, you know, that that I think would sort of fall into this into the irresponsible, dangerous bucket under the government's framework, but it's not necessarily as as clear-cut a case, right? Whether somebody who has used drugs regularly in the past, um, whether whether that person is is dangerous. Well, just as long as we make sure that we do leave the acting illegally portion for those people who yell at you know, youth sports coaches. That's that's really what I'm asking for. <laughs> there you go. Um, but thank you for chatting with us. This was uh, really interesting. And, you know, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks so much, Kimberly. All right, Kimberly. Well, that was really interesting. The other angle that I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on is the Solicitor General herself. Uh, she doesn't get a lot of wins uh, before the Supreme Court. She doesn't get a lot of, you know, easy uh, arguments. So I have to imagine this felt pretty good for her to, you know, go up here and seem like you're going to come away with a 7-2 to two win. What do you think? Is this uh, a rare 
easy day for her? You know, I do think that I would expect her to win and I would expect her to win pretty big and maybe, um, you know, as far as votes go and maybe even big on the merits. Um, you know, it could be one that has a bigger impact, like Andrew said. One thing, though, I bet you that Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger did not feel great about mm-hmm. was that she's been there for a while now. You know, she was sure. in the Solicitor General's office. She clerked for two justices. She's known around the building. And yet Chief Justice Roberts cannot pronounce her name, cannot do it. And I don't even remember. It was like or something. We'll hear an argument this morning in case 22915, United States versus Rahimi. General Prelogger. Well, you know, in the press seats we were like looking at each other like why can't he say this name (laughs) i will say he's had a lot of trouble with names over the years he's she is not unique in that yeah yeah he's not i'm thinking of the infamous uh zubadoo (laughs) (laughs) we will hear argument uh in case 2827 united states versus zubadoo uh well elizabeth p (laughs) okay you have to leave that in actually now no i I will pronounce her name right. I'm not going to pull a Roberts. Uh, Elizabeth Prelogger, if you're listening to this, uh, we sympathize with you. We know that you have a difficult job. Come on this podcast. Tell us all about it, and we will pronounce your name correctly. Guaranteed. Okay, so Kimberly, uh, we're done with the November sitting. Uh, What do we have coming up uh, when the justices return next month? Uh, Well, we'll be hearing the final sitting of the year, the December sitting. uh, And there are some pretty big cases coming up for that term. We've got uh, one about the opioid settlement, Purdue. And we've also got a case, uh, another separation of powers case coming involving the SEC and administrative law judges. And we've got Moore versus U.S., which could have implications for the wealth tax. So a lot going on in December. The justices are not quite done, though, before they go on their Thanksgiving holiday. They're going to be conferencing on Thursday to discuss pending petitions. And we could see orders out of that conference on Thursday, but there will definitely be an order list on Monday at 930. All right. Well, uh, you know we will be covering that. And by we, I mean Kimberly and Greg and Lydia (laughs) and uh, not me. Uh, Until then, please feel free to follow along for all the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.